Hello and welcome to The Mission. My name is Ravi Gurumurthy and I'm the Chief Executive of Nesta, the UK's Innovation Agency for Social Good. And on today's podcast, we have Indra Nui, who was the first woman of colour and immigrant to lead a Fortune 50 company, PepsiCo. She was the Chief Executive and Chair for many years, and she's written a book last year, a memoir about her life in full, work, family and our future. The book offers an inside look into Pepsi and Nui's thinking as she steered the company towards healthier products and reinvented its environmental profile. What I tried to explore with Indra was how a CEO and a company makes decisions and the extent to which these are influenced by consumers, shareholders, all the personal values and drive of the individual leader. We talked about what more companies can do on obesity and on childcare, and also the role of governments in pushing those agendas forward. It was a really interesting conversation um, and I learned a huge amount from it and I hope you enjoy it. Indra Nui, welcome to The Mission. There's a lovely little story at the beginning of your book, which talks about how for 15 years, you were in the office and you had a, a whiteboard that only your daughters could rub off or, or write anything on. And I think when you moved out of the office, you kept a replica of the last iteration and it had things like, hey, mom, I love you very, very much. Never forget that you have people that love you. Have a great day. You are the absolute best. Keep doing what you're doing. And I read I read this just after I'd um, tried to get my two year old out of the door to, to go for a dance class where she said, I hate you, daddy. <laughs> so. My first question, before we get into the big stuff about how we save the world and um, Pepsi, what's your what's your parenting advice to get children to write such lovely things on whiteboards? I think uh, our daughters wrote lovely things on the whiteboard and private told me they hated me. And they thought that I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was the worst mother. And uh, I mean, all the bad things, I got a full dose of that. Remember, I have daughters. Daughters have a way of using moms as punching bags. And I talk about yeah. that later in the book. I was the punching yeah. bag. But, you know, I think they need an outlet as they grow. It's confusing. It's tough. They need the parents as the outlet. So I was the outlet for my daughters. But when they came to the office, they also respected what I did. And I still have mm -hmm. that uh, canvas next door. And I look at that and uh, with little pangs of, um, you know, I don't know what. But uh, I look yeah. at that with that. It's funny, when I was in New York, my um, sister's kids visited me at the International Rescue Committee and Money, the youngest one, um, wrote on the corner of the whiteboard, Ravi is an idiot. <laughs> and I, it was so cute that I kept it for ages, for about a year, because I just didn't want to rub it off and I was missing them. And then I thought after a while, it's probably looking a bit unprofessional, but um, <laughs> he, was very, he was very pleased by it. Um, let's, get, let's get on to Pepsi. The thing I really want to focus on is that your, your big thing at Pepsi was your whole governing philosophy was performance with a purpose and you had these um goals around nourish replenish and cherish and, and actually they align very much with some of the things that nesta really cares about because it, you know, how, how we uh, make caring uh, a big thing in society how we tackle obesity how we sustain the planet and uh, i wonder if you could just tell us because many people probably don't know the the, the scale of pepsi particularly outside the, the the us but also the kind of tangible changes you brought about particularly before purpose and ESG was even a thing, because this stretches back to the mid-2000s, doesn't it, and before? Right. So let me just put PepsiCo in context. In 2000, when I became president of PepsiCo, uh, it was about a $40 billion company and, you know, grew to be 65 over the years. 
when I left, it was 65. Uh, PepsiCo operates in 180 countries around the world, has a quarter of a million employees, and has a market capitalization today of 200 and some billion dollars. When I left, it was about 160 billion dollars. So it's a, a meaningful company. It's a Fortune 50 company. Uh, and I think if memory serves me right, even until today, I'm the only female who's run a Fortune 50 company from a market capitalization perspective. So this was a company which was tremendous in scale and scope. But it was more than that. PepsiCo was always a very high performing company, financially. Always considered one of the leading companies for performance, consistent performance, and was a talent academy. People from PepsiCo, I mean, you just hired them without even interviewing them because they're so awesome. Uh, people from PepsiCo went on to lead many, many other companies. So PepsiCo is viewed as a talent academy, great performance, wonderful culture, youthful, uh, cutting edge of marketing. So first I step in as president of the company in 2000, having served as the head of corporate strategy. And I started to look at every trend in the world and how it's going to impact the company. And my brain starts to connect dots. And here I'm seeing growth coming from small companies who have, you know, little products that look very different from the established competitors in beverages and snacks. And they're taking all the growth. And they're right, I mean, claim to fame is that their products look healthier and fewer ingredients. Or it makes claims like organic, low sugar, uh, natural, uh, healthy, you know. And I'm looking at the marketplace and I'm not tracking it based on just the segments we were in. I'm looking at the overall beverage marketplace, the overall snacking. And I'm seeing that the growth rate of these small companies, of course, off of, off of a small base, is three, four, five times the growth rate of the big companies. And if this continues, I realize that they could be major forces in the market. But they're growing because there's a consumer need for those products. So I start digging into the consumer needs and I realize that on the fringe, there is a movement towards health and wellness. People are realizing that prevention is better than cure. The cost of healthcare is going up. They don't have enough people to take care of them. So prevention is better than cure. So my mind is going to, we have to start pivoting our portfolio to capture this growth. Not give up our existing products. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what if we were to develop healthier products, reduce the fat, sugar, and salt in our products, and give consumers a better offering of products. And Ravi, the most important thing is, you know, from the time I was president to when I took over as CEO in 2006, I noticed that there were changes in the eating and drinking habits of our own employees. Uh, you know, in our meetings and our credenzas, it used to be in the late 90s, a lot of full sugar products. Over time, it was going to zero calorie products and then to aquafina or water. That told me that even our employees are changing their eating and drinking habits. So I felt very strongly that the moral code of our life and the moral code of our livelihoods should come together within the law. So if we're all changing our eating and drinking habits, why would we assume that other consumers are not? And the marketplace is showing us that from a growth perspective, it's going up. And at the same time, obesity levels were going up. So rather than just say, it's just lifestyle and dismiss it. I thought the industry should lean in and do something about it. So that was my first plank of uh, the new strategy, which is start to modify the portfolio. Celebrate what you've got, build out new shoulders. I put in the R&D capability, the investments, 
the marketing to shift the portfolio. At the same time, I grew up in Madras in India, which is water distressed. And outside Madras, there's a Pepsi plant, which takes two and a half liters of water to make a liter of Pepsi then. And the challenge is who goes deeper into the aquifers first? And my point is, hey, I don't have water to drink or eat. In the town, large town of 10 million people, they don't have water to drink or eat. Any manufacturing plant that takes so much water to make a product ought to get water efficient, but that should become the mantra of these companies. And my mind, again, went back to my upbringing to say, all companies, if they're operating in water distressed areas, should be supremely water efficient. Because water is free, nobody worries about that. So that caused me to think about water use. And then, as I went around the world, I'd see plastic on the sides of roads, in landfills. And I knew they were going to be there for generations and centuries. So I realized that's another area that, you know, we were a contributor to and we needed to change. And that gave birth to the whole environmental issues. And finally, I became CEO at a time when everybody wanted to work in tech. They wanted to work in uh, glamorous industries, but I wanted them in PepsiCo because we needed the best and brightest in our company. So I thought the way to get them in was to say, hey, we care about you as people. We don't look at you as a pair of hands. We look at you as a real asset. So come work with us, bring your whole self to work, and we will create a new environment. So performance was performance. There was human sustainability, which was the whole issue of uh, nourish, environmental sustainability, which was replenish, and talent sustainability, which was cherish. If you didn't do purpose, you couldn't deliver performance because your costs would go up and you wouldn't have the growth. But if you didn't deliver performance, you couldn't fund purpose. So it was a virtuous circle. We were not giving money away, Ravi. We were doing, we were making money in a new way. And it sounds like if you take those stories about, say, water in Madras or seeing your own employees, it feels like it's a mixture of things, of values and concerns that you brought, like the issue of water, but also you just spotting consumer trends and trying to stay ahead of the curve. And how much of the impetus behind this was a hard-headed assessment of where the market was going versus you just caring about big problems like the environment and wanting to bring that uh, concern to That work. is a great question because I think every leader has to mix the two because you've got to look at the big trends. But the way, uh, you know, people internalize trends when they've lived the trends or they've seen it in action. Otherwise, it becomes an academic exercise. You know, every town I went to around the world, I would actually spend time in consumer homes. I would walk the market. I would look at the environment around us to really understand what was going on because we're a consumer product, you see. I wanted to understand our consumer. That, combined with my own lived experiences when I was growing up, and everything I was reading and hearing from our critics, I put that all together and I felt that companies are huge. They're little republics, as, we all, as I always say. But being a little republic means you have a duty of care to society. And so I took that very seriously. I honestly believe leaders look at all this academically but don't really immerse themselves in the issue. Walk around the world to understand what's really going on are the worst kind because uh, what they do in their personal life is totally different from what they do at work. And this is where the moral code of life and livelihood just don't come together. So you should just you should not try and erect those boundaries between the personal and the professional. You should try to, to blend them. It's not quite the boundaries. You always have boundaries between what you do mm -hmm. at home and work, but you've got to think in a consumer business in particular, you're a consumer at home. And there are more yeah. consumers like you. 
if you won't feed your kids a certain product because you don't think it's good enough, why would you sell it to other people's kids? So you've got to think with a sensibility and a sensitivity that is very, very important. The consequence of that strategy was massive changes to the products and the packaging and the whole business. And in the book, you talk about, I mean, a couple of things struck me. One was the role of, I think, your chief scientist, Mehmet uh-huh. Khan. And you talk glowingly about um, how he brought a lot of creativity and rigor to, to the work, but also design, actually. And you speak, when you, when you, when you spoke just now, you talk in a, a very designery way, even though, you know, you've been a CFO, you've been a strategist. So tell us a bit more about almost... How do you how do you do that R and D that innovation to to take the business forward and and redesign the products? Well, first of all, we didn't have that capability in house because PepsiCo was historically a development company. We knew how to flavor our way through growth. Occasionally, there'd be a new mm-hmm. platform that we'd come up with. Uh, but now we're talking about reducing the salt, fat, and sugar in our core products without affecting the taste. Very important, you know. People buy our products for taste, and mm-hmm. so. We needed new scientific capability to come in and play around with this. We were also looking for new sweeteners, new oils that could you know, reduce the uh, cholesterol levels in people or not, not contribute so much. So we're looking at new kinds of things in science. So I managed to get Liverpool-educated uh, Mehmood Khan to join uh, PepsiCo. Brilliant scientist. If you could get him on a podcast sometime, Ravi, you should. Just unbelievable. The way he talks, the way he approaches things, his style, his knowledge, phenomenal. Uh, I convinced him to join us. He didn't want to. He said, hey, I have a multi-billion dollar budget at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Why would I come to PepsiCo? I said, for one reason, Mehmood, in PepsiCo, you can taste everything you make, which you couldn't do in Takeda Pharmaceuticals. And you can make change on a large scale. He joined me and he attracted all kinds of talent to Pepsi because people just were in awe of him. And all of a sudden, they were reducing the salt, fat, and sugar of products. Uh, a blue can of Pepsi, regular Pepsi, in many countries around the world, has between 15 and 25% less sugar now than it did when I started. So what you do is you reduce the sugar little by little by little so the consumer gets trained to a lower level of sugar. Uh, we started to fry our Lay's potato chips in sunflower oil, which is heart healthy. So things like that. Reduce the salt level by changing the crystal structure of the salt. So Memo did amazing things. So that required investment. I had to put it out there while delivering performance. And just on those, and just on those product changes, for somebody who's outside the industry, how long does it take to actually change a product like that? And, and what's the actual process for doing those product changes? So if it's just a flavor change, it's a matter of weeks. It's very easy to do because in the mm-hmm. final stages, the drum where the flavor is applied, just take out one powder and put another powder. Wash out the earlier drum. Piece of cake. The big difference is when you're changing the salt itself. You've really got to mm-hmm. work the salt. You've got to do the testing in different temperatures. Because remember, we sell products in multiple countries in various temperatures. So when you change the crystal structure and go to smaller crystal salts, you've got to make sure all your manufacturers, your suppliers can supply it to you. And under different temperatures, it works well. So that could take about two to three years to really launch it commercially on a large-scale basis. And then when you do little pilots, you make sure over three or four or five purchase cycles, consumers don't have a negative uh, feedback about the product. All of that stuff we test. We test it, especially when it comes to our master brands. We're very careful what we do with them, you know, our big brands. And... uh, 
Then, of course, uh, as you looked at our products on the shelf, remember I talked to you about all the small upstarts who were taking all our growth? Their packaging was very different than our packaging. The best example I'll give your viewers in the UK is if you took a bag of Tyrells and a bag of Walkers. You know, Walkers was colorful. It was a well-known brand with the banner sun. But Tyrells came in, white bag with a carrot on it or little flowers and leaves. And all of a sudden, it looks healthier. It's not any healthier, but it looks healthier. So I realized that we were focused on design when it came to just colors on the bag and small incremental changes. We had to rethink our approach to design from packaging to presentation to the product structure itself. You know, what's the best way to snack for a man, for a woman? How much crunch do women like or not like? So we had to think about things completely differently, but we didn't have that sensibility in the company. So I tried to get a sense for how much design knowledge existed in the company. I bought our people coffee table books, made them read it, my senior executives, had them take pictures of things that they thought was design. The experience was pretty bad. I realized we needed totally new design thinking in the company. When I hired Mauro Porcini from 3M, and we built out the whole design capability, not additional cost, Ravi, because we replaced outsourced design capability in multiple agencies mm -hmm. with an in-house design capability. And all of a sudden, more customers want to partner with us because when we work with an NBA or a uh, NFL, now we are curating experiences. When we got the UEFA Champions League, they loved us because we curated that whole experience differently using design. Uh, we won many design awards and started to drive the business. So combination of R&D and design and embedding design into the innovation process allowed us to not just change our product, but change the way we talk to our consumers. When you were leading this change, you must have faced blockers, constraints from all sorts of different angles. Um, you know, you're obviously in a very powerful position as president and CEO, but um, how, what kind of what kind of reactions did you get and how did you persuade Kajol yeah. or tell people what to do? I was also chairman of my board. And I'm sitting there and there are the old timers who say, if it ain't broke, why fix it? We're growing. Why do you want to take on something that's growing and try to tinker with it? Mm. Um, others would say, are you Mother Teresa? I mean, we, as somebody said to me, we Americans like our soda and chips. What are you doing to it? I'm not doing anything to it. I'm just making it better for you. Because at the end of the day, I want you to keep consuming my products. I'm, I also worry about your health. So I want to make it better for you. Um, here is my biggest takeaway and a lesson that I'd pass on to people. When you start a transformation of this kind, transformations are time consuming. They are difficult. It requires enormous work. If you decide to start a transformation, root it in an outside-in perspective what's happening in the world, why do you need to change, you know, put it in a competitive, uh, you know, mega trend perspective and develop the conviction and the courage to stick with the program. People will try to knock you off your perch. It'll be some investors, it'll be an activist, it'll be your internal employees. As long as you can articulate why you're doing the transformation, sell it to your board, get them to buy it into you because they're my bosses. They had to buy into the agenda, which they did. And then any critic that comes by and they say, why are you transforming the portfolio? Don't explain why you're transforming the portfolio. Go quickly to the megatrend and say, 
There's a trend out there to health and wellness. Do you agree? Yes, I do. Therefore, I'm transforming the portfolio. As opposed to I'm just transforming the portfolio. Any critic, I took them back to the megatrends. Uh, because they all recognize the megatrends. So that's interesting. So you didn't sort of just try and fight it out in the trenches on that particular product or issue based on the, the actual evidence on that particular thing. You went back to the big picture. Always. Always zoomed out and then zoomed in to say, hey, this is the big picture. And the manifestation or the consequence of this big picture is that I have to change the portfolio. And then I recruited uh, supporters to amplify the message. You know, the biggest critics became our supporters. I said, look, if you really want me to stay with the change, you better go out there and tell people why the changes we're making is the right steps uh, for a company to take. And then, of course, the most important building block was, uh, you know, when we got the industry to sign up to doing the Healthy Weight Commitment Foundation, it was a major initiative to get the whole industry to say, we're going to reduce the caloric output of our products mm -hmm. into the marketplace. And the industry did it willingly. And I think we took out six and a half trillion calories from the U.S. diet in five years, which was and, unbelievable. And could you have only done that by getting all the industry to do it together because no one wants to move if the others don't? Or, you know, can individual businesses just go ahead and do it on their own? I think individual businesses should do it if it's an imperative for their growth and success okay, and their longevity. Mm -hmm. You've got to think about running the company for the duration of the company, not the duration of the CEO. You just, you know, the great poem by Alfred Law Tennyson, The Brook, I think about that all the time. The refrain says, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. I think companies should view themselves that way. That people, mm -hmm. you know, CEOs may come and go, boards may come and go, but the company should endure forever. The only way to do it is, yeah. you know, in spite of all of the issues, you retool the company constantly. And that was my goal. And so whether the rest of the industry did it or not, to ensure our growth and our long-term success, I was going to do it. However, because at that point, the industry was facing so much criticism. If the industry itself could come together and say, we are good players, uh, we would have a much better chance of talking to the critics. It was unbelievable when we started to bring them together. Nobody protested. Everybody got into the game and said, let's do it. And if we actually go back to the things you did, obviously some things you might do, like um, changing the sugar and salt content, if you can do that and people want to buy it, that's clearly not going to harm the bottom line. But some things like, um, for instance, packaging changes or pay changes for suppliers in Indonesia or um, perhaps changes to give people more rights to, to care and leave. All of those things can potentially add cost to the business. How do you, how do you square that with a, a focus on the bottom line? I think the, is it hard to actually do those the things? The critical thing is something that has a cost today has a benefit tomorrow. Okay, so showing the linkage between the cost and the benefit is critically important. And it's important that you understand why you're doing it and you articulate it to the company and to the board cost and the benefits. For example, um, when you put in the right support structures like on-site childcare and things like on-site or near-site childcare for our workers, uh, both in the headquarters and many of our uh, facilities around the world, you're doing that to increase retention. And retention is important because that leads to better performance rather than bringing people in and constantly churning them. And so if you can't demonstrate a benefit from these investments, Ravi, then you deserve to be uh, criticized. 
But the big issue is the following. There are some where the return is within a year or 18 months. There are some investments with the return maybe three or four or five years. The trick is lay out the agenda, talk about what you're going to do today for quick returns and what you're going to do for longer term returns and have a portfolio of investments that you can justify to the street. Remember, investors are never happy about investments. They're only happy about how much money you give them. But, and how did you convince them on particularly the intangible benefits? So if your reputation is better or you're, you're going to win the battle for talent, it's hard to actually quantify that, whereas it is easy to quantify the costs and the, and the, and the profits. So was it tough to, to win those arguments? Well, I had one. I, I'm going to put it in quotes, advantage. I hate it. It's not really an advantage, but I'm going to call it an advantage. I was running the company at a period when I had enormous number of critics about the kind of company all of us in the food industry were. Uh, you know, Pepsi in particular was referred to as selling uh, products that made people obese, you know, junk food, all that stuff. So uh, everybody knew that that label of PepsiCo had to be modified uh, because our portfolio was fun for you, better for you and good for you. Look, I inherited a wonderful fund for you portfolio. I was trying to change it. So the, 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 the challenge is um, using all of these markers and using the critics uh, as a reason we had to change. So if we had not changed, we would have been taxed. We would have been made to pay for cleaning up landfills. We would have been thrown out of many towns because we used too much water. So to gain a license to operate, we had to make changes. So we had to make all of these examples very clear in our annual reports, in our responsibility reports, in our Dow Jones sustainability filings. We had to tell all these stories. And I'll be honest with you, as I look back at my tenure as CEO, I had to be a missionary myself. I had to be out on the road telling the story again and again and again because there was so much criticism of companies like us in that period, if you recall. Even in the UK, I mind, the criticism was enormous. And so I was on the road all the time telling the story. I wish I didn't have to spend so much time out on the road, out in the public eye and getting beaten up, but had to do it. I mean, it's interesting to see how different companies react to that pressure. So, you know, some like an ExxonMobil will try and be almost in denial and fight it very hard. Whereas some will, will say, no, we're good and we're getting ahead of the curve and we are becoming more sustainable. How should, how should people think about what strategy to pursue if you're... Um, a chief executive in those situations? Well, I think critics should also understand where the company is coming from. It's not just a one-way street. For example, if you took any oil company, um, they may have a lot of initiatives to change. I don't, I'm not aware of what they are, but I'm sure many of them are thinking about those initiatives. The real question is, going back to the earlier question, Ravi, many of their investments take a lot of time to realize a benefit. Carbon capture is an example. In the interim, ExxonMobil still has to sell oil, still has to sell petrol. And the costs have to be manageable, otherwise the consumer is going to scream. I mean, one of the things we're not talking about is a transition away might result in petrol prices at $10 a gallon. Nobody's going to pay that kind of money. And so there is a very fine line about what's the crossover point. And so I think critics should also be looking at issues from the point of view of the company to say, are they making the right investments? Uh, how are we going to handle this crossover and how are we going to move from, you know, a fun for you to a better for you or a good for you product or from a fossil fuel to a renewable? How are they going to make the change? 
And I think it's got to be a constructive conversation between companies and critics. I'll say today that many NGOs prefer criticism than constructive working with companies. I mean, it's interesting comparing the different issues you talk about in your book, like childcare versus sustainability versus, say, health. Um, because if you take sustainability over the last 20 years, there's huge pressure from civil society. There's lots of progressive businesses pushing and there's government leadership. And therefore, you see this virtual cycle circle where everyone's almost trying to um, keep up with the trend, whereas you don't quite see the same dynamism um, and alliance between business and civil society and government on things like health or care. There is there's, there's movement, definitely, but it's a little bit more tepid. Um, so I, I'm just interested in Well, I, I get one question is, to what extent do you think business itself should be calling for stronger regulation in some of these fields. Because actually when government do, when businesses do lead, it really strengthens government's hand in, in pushing for, for stronger regulation. Were there examples in your tenure where you were saying, look, we can't, we can't do this ourselves because it will harm our bottom line. But if government regulates and we think we sh you should, obviously then, then we will. You know, so are there any pro-regulation arguments that you used or is that just anathema for, for business to be pushing? Look, there's room, there's a time for regulation, there's a time for sensible regulation, and there's time for other sticks. So let's talk about yeah. the carrots and sticks. And let me take obesity as an issue, okay? Um, right. And, I, you know, to be honest, I'm in awe of the organization you're leading, Ravi, because I think, you know, it's, it's a, a wonderful way uh, countries can think about big problems and how to move the country forward, okay? And I'm using the word progressive, not in the political sense, but more in terms of progressing uh, the economy forward and progressing the uh, population to a better place. Let me start with obesity. <clears throat> Typically what happened, regulation came in the form of taxation on certain categories. It doesn't help because you don't take the money from the taxation and put it directly to health. You can't because obesity is a systems issue. It's education, it's exercise, it's diet. And what we need to focus on is the consumer. We tend to focus too much on the supply rather than the demand. If you tax sugary drinks, they're going to go eat more chocolate or more donuts, eat a high-fat pizza of some sort, you know. There's enough options people have. You can't regulate everything. Okay? So you've got to think of it as a systems problem and say, where do you have the most leverage? The biggest leverage people have are in a health, health market, the insurance company is saying, hey, if you are of good health and you're practicing good behavior, your rates will go down. But if you're eating your way to bad health, your rates are going to go up or coverage is going to go away. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying you've got to figure out where the hub is where you can apply pressure. Right now, we're doing it on the spokes and we're doing it uh, sort of uh, haphazardly. And even on the spokes, we go tax a couple of um, categories, then we take away playgrounds and sidewalks. So people can't play or walk. Uh, and so I think we've got to think about this issue as a systems problem and say, what are all the things that need to be addressed? Early childhood education and care, zero to five makes a huge difference. How do we provide the education at that level and then carry it forward? How do we make sure people exercise? How do we make sure that they walk? How, how do we make sure that there is a 
movement at a point when video games are consuming their entire life. I mean, the biggest culprit in this whole thing is the internet, because it's made us all sedentary. Are we going to uh, tax the internet? I don't know. So I think we have to be practical and look at this as a systems problem with a system solution. I mean, so totally at the point that you've got to do loads of different things to try and tackle this. But you know, you obviously felt when you were running Pepsi that you know you could do something to make these foods um, better for you and make it easier in a way for consumers to do the right thing. So. Uh, if you did have sugar taxes or salt taxes more across the board that were trying to drive a bit more reformulation, is that not is that not a good con contribution, albeit only one part to sort of making the food environment um, more conducive to people not eating too much? And I think again, if you educate the consumer to make the right choices, mm -hmm. they they will vote in their shopping patterns as to what products they want and yep. don't want. So that's. And then that drives you to respond. Exactly yeah. right. And, you know, in my case, I was seeing the little guys taking my growth away. So I had to change mm -hmm. and the industry came along. And the industry didn't come along kicking and screaming. They came along willingly. That's the thing that really surprised mm -hmm. me, how they leaned in mm -hmm. and how many calories they took out. And we didn't calculate the calories that went out. Our biggest critic mm -hmm. was given the responsibility to calculate how many calories was taken out of the food system. They were astounded mm -hmm. at what we did. Look, clearly... We can do our part, no question about it. Mm -hmm. But let town planners do their part too, to put in sidewalks and playgrounds. Um, let's figure out education. Let's figure out what the insurance mm -hmm. companies can do. In many, many countries, Ravi, taxes were imposed on the categories, and those monies were used to do other things except focus on health. But, on, but uh, the sugary drinks levy in the UK, do you think that played a role in driving the reformulation of sugary drinks, or were, were industry already going to do that anyway? I don't know. I don't know. In right. certain countries, it did play a role, for sure. In certain countries, companies were all already on the track to go to zero calories. Again, you can't just impose a tax and make a lot of noise for two years and then back off and go to the next issue. If you're going to address it, yeah. again, by going after one category and levying a tax, it looks like you're on a witch hunt. But if you frame it in terms of the overall systems problem and all the pieces that you're going to work on, okay, then it looks like you truly care about society. And I think that's what your organization is so nicely set up to do. The other sort of the other big issue that you really are very passionate about in your book is is actually one that we're focused on as well, which is about childcare. Mm. And I think COVID in particular has really revealed the caring crisis, both for elderly people, but also children. Um, and Again, I'm sort of interested in the role of business in leading this because obviously there's a big role for government, there's a big role for lots of organisations, but um, what do you think business can do to push, push this? I think that coming out of the pandemic, we are seeing many people leave the workforce. And, yeah. um, you know, we've been focused too much on the office worker leaving the workforce. The office worker who makes more money than the essential worker. In fact, mm -hmm. the biggest resignation is from the essential worker. The worker who has zero flexibility, has lousy wages, has no support structures. The little childcare that exists pre-pandemic has gone away, and the cost of childcare has become astronomical. Yet, we are not talking about the essential worker. We're talking about the office worker. Should it be hybrid? Should it be four-day work week? Should it be flexible work hours? Uh, what are we going to do about the great resignation? 
I think we should talk about them, but we should also talk about the essential workers first. Thing number two, mm-hmm. I think that the essential workers hurting today. Their wages have not gone up. They have zero flexibility. They have no predictability in their shift schedule many, many times. And um, during the pandemic, they didn't have the option of not coming to work. They had to come to work every day because they're all essential workers, truckers, people who work on manufacturing lines, caregivers, all of them. I think the time has come for companies to think about how we support these people. Because when you come to the office worker, they're thinking about hybrid flexibility and all of that stuff. Where to locate the childcare is becoming a big issue. Do you locate it in the community? Do you locate it in the offices? Do you locate it next to co-working spaces and communities? So that's a discussion that's going to evolve over the next two years. But when it comes to essential workers, I think the discussion is now. They are hurting. They're not making much money. I think it's important that countries, communities, states think about childcare support for those people. Um, how do you allow them to stay in the jobs that enable our way of life at the same time a system to take care of their aging parents or the young kids. Look, we are an aging society globally, globally aging society. I think we're going to have to think about care in a more profound way because if we don't have young people, we're not going to have a, a social security system that's robust, a pension system. At the same time, we're going to have a lot of aging people. So we need young people to take care of the aging people. And we need women in the workforce who are all large uh, part of the care economy. So I think it's important that we set up a support structure for childcare in particular, because if we don't do that, Ravi, we're going to see even more people quit the workforce. And are you seeing, obviously, that there's a massive role for governments and taxation to try and, and pr- provide some of this. Are you seeing um, empl- employers adapt, partly due to hybrid work, but also because of this war for talent that you talked about? Um, and is there a bit of a sort of race now to try and, uh, increase entitlements, particularly in the US I'm talking about here, because obviously in Europe it's a quite different picture. Um, a lot of companies that I talk to are thinking about a care support structure, but they're thinking about it mostly for the office work. So I think the discussion has to be expanded to include essential workers. And it's not enough to say if you're making less than $60,000, childcare is free. There's no childcare system. We have to set it up. And so um, I'm hoping that that becomes a major priority because, look, at the end of the day, if we can take all of the people who want to work and enable them to work in the economy, we will not have this big shortage of workers. And in fact, the GDP will grow even more. So I look at this again as an economist, not a feminist. And and just sticking on COVID in remote work and and the disruption that's happening, um, as remote work takes hold, is there a sort of dark side to this where, um, well, not necessarily dark, it could be beneficial, which is that you're likely to see more um, outsourcing and offshoring. So could we see another wave of more service level jobs disappear from advanced industrial nations as companies question why have we got, you know, once you've got rid of the, the building, you then might think, well, do we need office workers in the UK? Why don't we just outsource it uh, and offshore it? Well, those all could happen. Uh, The only thing is, with technology proceeding at the pace at which it's proceeding, the offshoring could well happen, not because, uh, you know, because of the future of the workplace. It could happen because you've got to go where the talent is. And I think we have to retrain our talent base for the new technologies in massive ways. 
there's a huge reskilling agenda where we need to make sure mm -hmm. people put the monies to reskill people because I'm looking at the new technologies, Ravi. I'm a student of all of them right now, and I tell you, it's staggering. And if we don't have, I, I think cornering the talent for all these new technologies is going to be the name of the game for countries. Anybody who graduates from a university with degrees in anything that relates to these advanced technologies, hold on to them. Absolutely hold mm -hmm. on to them. Uh, now, again, it's all linked to politics and, uh, you know, geopolitics, I should say. But so that's for governments to decide. But at this point, um, everything is a function of uh, the quality of talent. I'll give you one example, quantum computing, which is, you know, really the next frontier of computing. In North America, there are only five centers of real quantum computing. There are a few in private enterprise, but real centers in universities, there's five. So anybody who graduates from these quantum computing uh, uh, universities, grab them and tell them, you know, I'm going to lock you into the United States because we want you here to contribute to the technology moving ahead. Now, you don't want to train them and then send them out so that they help other countries, although every country needs the help. So I think we have to think mm -hmm. about uh, an immigration policy that supports technology. Mm -hmm. Very important. There's an interesting line in your book where you're, you're talking about, I think you're talking to a prime minister, where you say something along the lines that of, you know, you, would, you wouldn't have come to the UK, you, you, you went to the US because you knew you could have, you could reach the top like you have done it at Pepsi. I forget the exact well, quote, he, but I, I think you have been quite negative on the ability. What do we need to do to, um, to sort of get the next um, ingenuity to, to come to the UK? I think the Prime Minister was asking me why I didn't come to the UK many years ago when I migrated right, to the US. It. And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, had I come here, I'm not sure we'd be having lunch together. Um, and I believe mm -hmm. that at that time, because there were very few people who looked like me anywhere near the top in the UK. Things are changing now, mm -hmm. but I'm talking uh, several, several years ago, maybe 10 years ago, there weren't too many people yeah. like me. And so uh, I think overall, if I'm being very honest, Ravi, I grew up in the world's largest democracy, but I really made my name in the world's oldest democracy. I am a product of the openness of the United States, the welcoming environment in the United States, the mentorship that many of the people in the United States provided me, and the meritocracy that this country is. Okay? People might criticize it for lots of other things, but I saw the good in it, and I am a product of that incredible environment. I got pushed along, pulled along, kicked around when I didn't really do well, and somehow, you know, I ended up being CEO of PepsiCo. It is an incredible and an incredulous journey because PepsiCo is such an iconic American company. To have somebody born in India, a woman, from an emerging market, leading this big, iconic, developed market company is a story unto itself. Uh, and I think it's as much about them and the country as it is about me. And so I think that, you know, we've got to look at the U.S. for what's good in it and emulate it. Reading your book, you get a, an incredible sense of the drive and ferocious hard work and persistence that you've brought to, to your career. Um, so... I can't imagine you putting your feet up and, and relaxing um, very much, but maybe you are. But what, what's, what's, where do you want to make change happen in the next 10 years? Well, you know, I'm really engaged heavily with people on this care infrastructure issue. And so um, mm -hmm. started with 
I'm working with some uh, organizations. This is a, a topic that's been researched, scored, studied, etc. So I'm bringing those organizations together and saying, let's develop a scorecard to understand how we measure whether a state has very good childcare. What's a scorecard? Right. So we're going to start with the output metrics first and then start thinking about what we need to do in the input and where to build good childcare and who's going to pay for it. So um, what I said, as I said in the book, is I'm going to take my time, my resources, and deploy it against this issue, which is what I'm doing now mm -hmm. financially, my time, etc. You know, I sit on boards. I uh, have a great time sitting on boards like the ICC and enjoying myself with cricket um, and Amazon and Philips. And um, I teach up at West Point at the Military Academy. My days are full, Rata. <laughs> I'm sure they are. And just on the sort of children's issue, again, one of the things I think we all wrestle with is that there's obviously so much political pressure to spend money on older people. They vote. But it's always been structurally quite hard to get the right degree of focus on children and investing in children. So is that something you're thinking about um, trying to sort of address? You know, rather than think about investing in children, I'm saying if we don't invest in the young family builder who we need in the job market, mm -hmm. we're never going mm -hmm. to be able to uh, meet the country's needs for labor. And the only way to attract mm -hmm. and retain that young family builder is to make sure the children are taken care of. That's the one argument. Yeah. The second argument is, we cannot afford our birth rates to go down too much. Mm -hmm. So we have to get back up to the 2.2.1 if we're going to have a, a thriving population where the young, healthy, old, and financially and physically. Ingenuity, thank you so much for joining us and sharing so many wonderful insights. Um, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thank you, Ravi. Mm -hmm.